part, Trace. The half note guitar solo. Mm. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the vineyard. My name is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here. Glad to see you guys on this rainy Sunday. Everybody all right? Good. Hey, before we get going this morning, one other announcement in two weeks. In two weeks, we'll have uh, Church at the Lake. Yeah, so uh, we will not have a Sunday service here. We will do one service at the lake in two weeks, and that's also going to be our baptism service. So we're going to dunk people in the water right out there at Green River Lake. And if you are wanting to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, if you want to follow Jesus as a disciple with your life, um, it'd be a great time to do that. Come see me or Andrew. I already know we have a couple people who are going to be baptized. It's going to be a, a good time. So here's what we normally do. The church will provide chicken and we'll provide drinks and you guys provide everything else so make your best side dish make your best dessert bring it out and it's really always a good time to bring like friends especially people who are not really into jesus or something this is one of our most fun times we have together and it's really really casual and for people who have never hung out in the church this would be a great place to bring them so i'll put that out there all right hey um want to continue our series on visionary leadership this morning and want to talk out of three passages this morning and in some ways I want to pick up with some of the stuff that we dealt with last week because I feel like it needs I feel like it needs fuller expression um, this morning I want to talk to you about what God is like what God is really really like and I want to look at three particular passages this morning and we're going to go ahead and put those up there The first one we're going to deal with is Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. And as we see these three passages, you're going to see really quickly that the common theme through all three passages is hardness. We're going to talk a little bit more about Pharaoh's heart being hardened and what this means about Pharaoh and what this ultimately means about God. So... Uh, I'm not going to lie to you this morning. I need everybody to put their thinking caps on a little bit. We're going to go at maybe just a touch higher theological place than we normally go here at the Vineyard. And um, because I actually think this is one of the more serious issues in life. So let's start with the scripture here. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. You might want to underline that. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. By the way, freedom in the Bible is always serving the Lord. Freedom in a biblical worldview is always connected to service. It's not doing anything I want. It's being connected back to the discipleship yoke to Jesus. Let my son go me. And this is also about sonship too. You want to be a son? Begin to serve the Lord. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I believe the Lord is serious. <laughs> the next one. But when, this is in the midst of the plagues here. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, meaning a bit of a break, he hardened his heart. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So in the first scripture, 
The Lord said, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. In this one, Pharaoh is hardening his heart. And then finally, Exodus 7.13, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, meaning Moses and Aaron, as the Lord had said. In this scripture, who knows where the hardness has come from? So in one scripture, we see that the Lord says, I'm going to harden his heart. In the second scripture, we see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And in the third scripture, we see that there is some heart hardening, but we're not entirely sure which direction it's coming from. I've put these three scriptures up there this morning because I want to show the distinct variations on how Pharaoh's heart came to be hard and stubborn. These are just three little snippets out of that Exodus text. But um, what I want you to understand is, in the course of about eight and a half, nine chapters, there are over 20 mentions of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And he was unwilling to listen to God or to Moses. Now, the reason that we're going to look at it this morning is because of some of the things that it has to say about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. If the text had simply said that Pharaoh was stubborn and that he was bullheaded, it'd be a non-issue, right? Why? Well, of course he's stubborn and bullheaded. That's what Pharaohs are, right? And, and there would have been more of a context, more of a pretext for God's judgment on his life. But over and over again, the scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And judging by the number of Facebook messages that I received last week, and judging by the number of text messages that I received on my phone from you guys last week, one of the things I realized is that a number of us in the room began to feel the, feel the implications of what it would mean if God would harden someone's heart and then judge that person based upon what he said that he did to him. You follow me? If God, was far, if God was hardening Pharaoh's heart, then how could God possibly judge him and hold him responsible for his stubbornness? If God is truly just, how can he unjustly revoke one man's free will in order to hold him responsible for actions that are not his own? If God is the sort of being that is pulling strings in the shadows and making some puppets dance in his delight and others squirm in his wrath, what does that mean for you and I? If we look at this for even one moment, if we look at it for even one moment and reflect on the implications, you and I have got to admit that this is a bit unnerving. What if he did that to me? And one of the questions that we have to deal with right off the beginning when we come to these passages are questions like this. What kind of God are we dealing with? Is he arbitrary? Is he petty? Is he sometimes good and sometimes bad? Do his actions to certain people stem from his mood in that particular moment? If God has had a bad day at the office, will there be hell to pay when he gets home? Furthermore, must we call God good? Simply because he's the biggest guy in the room. You ever heard some people talk about the goodness of God and you realize that maybe, maybe they're like 
worldview on the goodness of God really isn't coming from a picture of his beauty, but it's mostly just coming from having to acknowledge in their own intellect that God's sort of like the biggest guy in the universe, so no one can stand up to him, and we kind of have to say that. (laughs) Must we call him good because he's the biggest guy in the room, or is he beautiful? Is he beautiful? And I'm going to admit right up front here, that this morning we're dealing with some of the ultimate questions. And this isn't the sort of territory that we normally trek through here at the vineyard. But because the scriptures occasionally beg the question, we should deal with them. One of the things that we cannot say, one of the things that we cannot say is this, that these matters are too great for me, and I'm just going to go ahead and turn a blind eye to this and live my life. Make no mistake, make no mistake, these matters this morning are too big for anyone in the room. These are matters too big for anyone in the room. They're too great for any of us. Uh, They're shrouded in mystery. And the truth is, even at the end of this message this morning, I'm not going to be able to give anyone a perfect, airtight, satisfactory answer. However, they are matters that the saints must grapple with because the answers we come back to, they work outward in increasingly large concentric circles that eventually get amplified across our lives, across our worldviews and our decision-making processes. And finally, they form our ultimate opinions about God. And once your opinions about God have been formed, that will either greatly benefit your ability to trust God or rob you of the ability to trust that he's even a little bit good. This is why it's a big deal. We may not come to a satisfactory, airtight, perfectly wonderful philosophical answer, but unless we grapple with it, and we must grapple with it because the scripture is begging the question when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If we don't deal with it, then in a... In a in that vacuum of undealing, we are actually dealing with it, and it's forming us. It's actually, it's actually beginning to say things in your decision-making processes. It's getting amplified like, like a voice across a canyon, across your decision-making, and eventually across who you think God is. And if you think he's sometimes bad, if you think he is sometimes bad to anyone, even one person in the universe, that will rob you at some point of your ability to trust him. That will rob you. There's a few ultimate questions in life. Two, actually. Number one, who is God? Inside of the question, who is God, is the more fundamental question, what is God like? And secondly, who am I? Distortions in our understanding of each of these questions can have long-term consequences that you did not consider. If you get a distortion in either one of these questions, there will be long-term consequences that you didn't consider. For instance, I've been on a gun-buying kick. It's kind of fun. Anyway, I've been on a gun-buying kick, bought my middle son a new rifle the other day, and we sighted it in. And if you sight a rifle in at 25 or 30 yards and you make it where it will hit the bullseye every single time at 25 or 30 yards, great. But if you don't do the work of sighting it in a little further, say 100 yards, sighting it in at 25 may not do you any good at further trajectories. Why? Because you may be dealing with such a short span that the trajectory is imperceivable, the variation if you're off even a half of a degree at 25 yards, amplify that out to 100, 
or 150, you may miss the target completely. This is why distortions in questions of who is God and what he is like and who am I, they may not affect you in the short term, but give it 25 years. Give it 25 years. You may not even be a Christian anymore. Trajectory matters. Small variations matter little over small distance, but the further one goes, the greater those variations become. Perspective matters as well. Not long ago, Magnolia and I, my, my only daughter, we went to New York City, and there's nothing like Manhattan. If you've never been, I highly recommend it. It's not a terrible place. It's a great place. It's a wonderful place. Manhattan's incredible. And one of the things I love most about Manhattan is how small you feel. The buildings are enormous, and there's like a half million people on the streets. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It's wonderful. And there's these giant buildings. And when you're in the middle of Manhattan, especially like she and I, I'd never been, and she certainly had never been, there's a certain way of engaging the city at street level, right? And I have my little, you know, my little iPhone, and we're getting on the subway, and you engage the city at a certain level. However, your perspective on the city completely changes when you go to the top of the Empire State Building, and you can really see what that strip of land that is Manhattan really is, and how far north goes, and how far east and west and south goes, and you get a completely different worldview on what Manhattan is really like. This is why we have to sometimes deal with these like meta-questions, these, these questions that exist at 30,000 feet. Because it gives us a different perspective than living on the ground. And by the way, when you come down from the top of the Empire State Building, your perspective on the ground is forever changed by what you experienced up there, even for a moment. Some of us are unwilling to deal with the big questions. And we occasionally have to grapple with the big questions because the big questions are always hanging there. And if we'll go up and and grapple with them, it will change our perspective on the ground for the rest of our lives. See, our life is not, life in God is not simply a sprint. It's not a race of a few hundred yards. It's a marathon of years. It's a marathon of years. It's an endurance test of years. It's a journey that requires a bit of perspective and at times course correction. We can never lose sight of the fact that God is beautiful. That he is the ultimate goodness in the universe. God is the ultimate goodness in the universe. The ultimate goodness of the universe. He is absolutely wonderful. He's beautiful. And, that, and that not only that, but his ways are the true ways. And they're the ones that, less, that lead to the best kinds of life. When you lose reality, when you lose grip of that, you, you, you lose your ability to love and trust, perhaps not wholly, but in part. And when you lose a part, a kind of erosion takes place. It's to lose the little bit that creates a pocket for the rest to fall. And it's so important because every true leader is ultimately a follower. This whole series is about visionary leadership. But in the kingdom of God, uh, visionary leaders are not, they're not islands on their own. Visionary leaders are people who are ultimately seeing the Father and following Him. And when we lose grip with some of these ultimate realities, we lose our ability to trust and to see the Father. And as a result, we lose our ability to lead. So what do we do with passages like Exodus 4.21? Let's put that back up. What do we do with patches, passages like Exodus 4.21? I'm going to give you four things that we should do with passages. It's ways of handling the scripture. Very simple. Ways of handling the scripture and ways of beginning to approach difficult pictures in God. 
the first thing we do with passages like Exodus 4.21 is we need to consider all that led up to that difficult passage. In, in this case, you have to consider the fact that Israel had been held captive as a slave for 400 years. That's hard for us to grab a hold of. Before God says, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Before we get there, when we engage this scripture, we need to realize what has happened up to that point. And up to that point, Israel had been, in, had been held captive for 400 years. And how many of you understand that 400 years is a really long time? Like, it's so long that you and I actually can't really comprehend it. It's twice as long as America's been a country. It's way longer than the travesty of slavery was ever institutionalized in our own country. We're talking about a history, like a a, a giant history. Furthermore, I was, um, I don't know why I was thinking of this yesterday, but I got to thinking about Haley's Comet and how many times it comes close to the earth so you can see it. It comes by about every 75 or 76 years. Uh, In the time that the children of Israel were held captives in Egypt, Halley's Comet came to the earth five or six times, depending on when. That's a long time. Like things are happening in the the heavens that hardly ever happen in the time that they were held. Imagine that. These descendants are the very people that God had promised to bless when he made a covenant with Abraham. That's a really long time for some of God's favorites to be oppressed. And what that means is this. It means that Pharaoh had grown accustomed to the arrangement. He had never even considered that it was abusive. It was just the way things are. You understand that after 400 years, everyone who's alive just assumes it's the way things are. Both those who are in power and those who are oppressed. He had inherited a hard worldview from his father and his grandfather. Think about this. When your mom does the laundry, and she always does the laundry, and every single time she does the laundry, and when your mom cooks dinner, and she always cooks dinner, and every single time she cooks dinner, and she always does your laundry and always cooks your meals, what do you do? You take her for granted. That's what you do. You take her for granted. And then one day she goes on vacation, or you go to college, or she gets sick, and reality sets in. You see, when people, no matter who they are, when people are removed from the realities of life, when they get a bit of distance from the blood, the sweat, and the tears, when they get separated from the least, the low, and the lost, they become hard. Just like a loaf of bread that's been set on the counter, become stale without anyone trying to do anything to that bread. It just happens. So we need to understand what led up to that difficult passage. 400 years, that's what happened. Secondly, we need to look carefully at the difficult passage. And one of the things that I see in this difficult passage this morning, one of the things that I see is not only the difficult concept of God hardening Pharaoh, but I see the Father's heart toward Israel. Do you see that? Look at what the Lord says about Israel. I love this. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. Anybody in here got a firstborn son? I do. 
Anybody in here a firstborn son? Imagine this. Imagine you have a firstborn son. Maybe you are a firstborn son. Now imagine that someone had come and stolen your firstborn son and made him a slave. Imagine that someone had beaten and abused your firstborn child for 400 years. How would you feel? Would you be upset? Would you be downright angry? Would that feeling be just? Now imagine that one of your other children was the one abusing your firstborn. Would you be any less upset? Would you just turn a blind eye? Would you just let it go? Would not any good father be moved to action? And again, imagine that you are the other sibling, the one that is holding his other brother as a slave. Imagine what kind of heart it would take to pull a move off like that. What kind of person does that? What kind of person, what kind of person takes his older brother and holds him as a slave? What kind of heart in your chest do you have to do to pull a move off like that? Is your heart hard or is it soft? See, I think we're giving, we're coming to the answers already. So anytime you're dealing with a difficult passage or a difficult concept in God, it's really important to consider the difficult passage deeply. Thirdly, one needs to consider the larger narrative that surrounds the difficult passage on both sides, both on the front end, the passage itself, and then on the back end. 400 years of slavery on one side, promises to Abraham on that same side. And on the other side, Moses and Aaron send in with miracles and plagues and eventually a spectacular sea crossing. That's on the other side. And if you read too quickly, and this is really normal, but if you read too quickly or without thinking, you miss something quite obvious. It's possible to just see the judgment and the fire and the blood and the pain and the heat, all the while missing the mercy, the patience, and the restraint demonstrated for God. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves is this. If God had a firstborn son, and he does, and if that firstborn son was held as a slave, and he was, for 400 years, and he was, and if that firstborn son was held for 400 years as a slave by another one of God's kids, and another one, why didn't God just go in and send a fireball from heaven and kill Pharaoh and set them all loose? This is really interesting, isn't it? See, it's possible to read the Exodus account and come up with a picture of God who is sometimes really bad to certain people. Why didn't God just go in? He would have even at some level been justified. You've been holding my firstborn son as a slave. Why didn't God send a fireball out of heaven, consume Pharaoh on his morning walk? Everyone would have seen it. Kill his army with the same fireball. And then Israel could have just gone free. Why didn't he do that? Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't he do that? He's God. He can possibly do that. I mean, it's not like it would even be hard. If God can orchestrate a sea crossing on dry land, a fireball from heaven that kills Pharaoh and all of his army would not have been difficult. Why did he not do it? It Also, it would have been way more efficient. (laughs) Couple things. Number one, efficiency is not a primary concern in the kingdom of heaven. 
And then the second reason is this. God is merciful. Even to bad people, he is merciful. Even in his judgment, there's abundant mercy. Could the God who gives snake staffs and turns the Nile into blood and splits the Red Sea have any trouble exterminating an Egyptian king? The answer is no, no. God is demonstrating his mercy. The command to let Israel go is at the same time an invitation to freedom. We need to see this. When God says to... When God says to Pharaoh, you need to let my firstborn son go, that's actually not just a command. It's a command within the inside of it is mercy. And it's actually an invitation for Pharaoh to come and live in some freedom. You see, Pharaoh was a slave to power and a slave to the systems of the world. But God was offering something much, much better. God was inviting Pharaoh into the winning that comes from losing. God was inviting Pharaoh into the giving which is better than receiving. And God was inviting Pharaoh into the first position, which is at the back of the line. He was offering nothing other than the very kingdom of God itself to Pharaoh. Consider the fact that there were ten plagues. You can look at this and go, wow, God was really pissed. Or you can say, wow, how many chances do really bad people get before the Lord? At least ten. The answer is at least ten. You get at least ten chances to do the right thing. You can be the sort of person who is the figurehead of a world system which dominates, oppresses, kills, and destroys people for 400 years, and you can still have 10 chances before the Lord. God is incredibly patient. He is incredibly patient. He was offering Pharaoh something better. Pharaoh couldn't hear it, but he was offering him something better. You see, if you're an oppressor, you need to be set free as much as the people you're oppressing need to be set free. What do we need to do with difficult passage? Fourthly, fourthly, we need to consider other passages. This is called intertextual connectivity. That's, a fam- that's just a fancy way of saying the little threads that the Holy Spirit weaves through the text. And by the way, the Bible's full of these. You need to follow some of them. For instance, here's just one. 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. Samuel, 1 Samuel 6. Goodness gracious. This is when the Ark of the Covenant is taken away from Israel by the Philistines and they all get tumors on their butt and they decide to send it back and they say, well, what are we going to send to God so that he won't be angry with us? And they say, well, let's send him five golden tumors and some golden, uh, some golden rats that represent our kingdom. Look, and this is what is said about the Lord referring back to, back to his time in Egypt. Why would you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them Did they not send the people away and then they departed? What is the rest of the scripture saying about who is hardening their hearts when it comes to Pharaoh and God and the Egyptians? Well, the rest of scripture says it wasn't God who did it. The rest of scripture says that it was Egypt who did it. So what gives? Right? That's the next question. What gives? Well, I want to say a couple things. First thing I want to say is this. Essentially... What we're dealing with sometimes in the, in the scripture with 
difficult concepts, some of the difficulty that arises from Scripture is language stuff. They're called idioms. And so, even in the Scripture, places like Exodus where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, sort of a Hebrew idiom. Anybody ever had a bad day, maybe at your work or something, your boss got angry with you, and you go home, you tell, you tell someone, man, my boss got angry with me, and he bit my head off. Now, did your boss really bite your head off? Or maybe you're going to go look for a job, and you tell a friend, you know what, I'm going to go hit the streets. How many of you understand that punching pavement won't give you a job? <laughs> So most people understand that your boss really didn't bite you and no one in their right mind expects to get a job from punching pavement. It's just a way of saying something. And by the way, the scriptures are full of these kinds of idioms. For instance, 1 John, let's put this passage up. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says this, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, him being God, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, now, how many of you understand that God is not a liar? How many of you understand that no one on the world, no one alive in the earth right now could make God a liar? What are they saying? What are they saying? It's just an attempt. What, what the scripture is telling us right now is that the attempt to deny sin is the equivalent of attempting to make God a liar, which in this in, instance is really interesting because it's rendered with an active verb as if, as if it actually happened. Do you see that? You can't make a God a liar, and it's rendered with an, even though it's rendered with an active verb. Okay, I want to put up another one. This is from the Old Testament, 2 Sam 12, 9. This is when David has taken a wife that he should not have. And Nathan comes in to pronounce judgment on him. Look at this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. And taking his wife to be your wife. You guys know the story. Did David strike down Uriah the Hittite with the sword? No. No. What did David do? No. David put him on the front lines. So that he would get struck down with the sword. So what is the answer? The answer is yes and no. It's a way of saying things. It's a way of saying things. So the second thing that we need to come to is this. What is being said? When the scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, we need to ask ourselves, what is being said, even if it is an idiom? Well, we have to put it all together. And it comes together like this. Israel is God's firstborn son, meaning that Israel has standing in God's heart. And Pharaoh has been master to Israel without thought. And God in his justice sends Moses to free Israel with power, but also with restraint. And because Pharaoh was already hard, already stubborn, already determined, even the commands of God though they're wrapped in mercy, both reveal his hard heart and make it harder. How does that happen? Well, it happens like this, because Pharaoh provides the raw materials and God forges it. It's interesting to me that Moses did not go in and beg Pharaoh. He commanded. And if there's one thing that a Pharaoh can't handle, is that he cannot handle listening to, to demands from a goat herder. So the method both revealed his hard heart and reinforced it. This is really important because oftentimes God's mercy is wrapped in a command or a demand. 
To set the slaves free was both good for the slaves, but it was also good for Pharaoh. Let's put it another way. Many of you in the room understand this. Jesus is radically welcoming. Jesus is radically welcoming. Everyone, everyone, everywhere is radically welcome to come to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter what you've been into. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, if you're heavy and if you're burdened, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls to everyone. He calls the low. He calls the lost. He calls the least. But he also calls the great and mighty. But at the same time, not only is Jesus radically welcoming, but he calls everyone to come and follow him. That's mercy wrapped in a demand. You can't just add Jesus on to the end. You can't, you can't maintain your life just the way it is and take a bit of Jesus on the end. To receive the mercy is to submit to the radical demands of Jesus. It's to follow him. It's to leave your life and take up a new kind of life. Such as listening and obeying. And as such, the mercy that melts some hardens others. Jesus says, hey, follow me. Some people are like, are you kidding me? I get a chance. And they hear the mercy in it, it melts them, and they fall into his arms. Other people here follow me, and they're like, offended. They're offended. I don't need to follow you, I'm doing pretty well. I, I will, I'll take you as a, a, as, a, as a small addition to the back of my life. I'll build a Jesus garage onto the four-story mansion of my life. Jesus is saying, I would like to destroy your house and give you a better house. So when the scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, what was really happening is God comes to Pharaoh in a manner which really opens up and reveals what was already there and in doing so causes Pharaoh to double down and become entrenched in what he already was. Some of us can't hear the mercy of God because we have an offense towards what he's really asking. And so this is really instructive for everyone in the room. It's possible to encounter the mercy of God and rather than melt into his arms, become even more resistant. That should cause everyone in the room to tremble. How? How does that happen? Well, the simplest way, and it happens in a million ways, but the simplest way it happens is this. By constructing a life, by constructing a life so that we get what we always want. By refusing to listen to everyone. Pharaoh had never listened to anyone in his entire life. He had always gotten exactly what he wanted. And so a callus grew around that part of him that God would call out to, which is his will. The worst thing that can happen to anyone in the room is for you to always get what you want. And what's crazy paradoxical about that statement is this. You and I, most of us in the room, almost every single American... We are all working life with a vision in our mind. And the vision that's in our mind, if we're honest, is we're working toward an end where we get what we want. Where we end up rich, where we end up famous, where we don't have to listen to people, where we tell people 
what to do, and people serve us rather than we serve them. And when we give in to that kind of mindset, we become a Pharaoh rather than a Moses and certainly not a Jesus. The worst thing that can happen to anyone in the room is to get what you want all the time. It will actually cause a callus to grow on your heart and you will not be able to hear the God who says, if you want to win, you've got to lose. And if you want to be first, you've got to go to the back. And if you want to, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to live, you've got to die. You just won't be able to hear it. So this morning, is God good? Extremely. The answer is extremely. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by challenging him. And by the way, every single Pharaoh needs challenging. One of the things that you and I need this morning is that we need to at least come to this spot. We probably can't eat the whole enchilada right here, but we at least need to get to the spot where we want to take the first bite of the enchilada. And that first bite is this. We need to get to the spot where we can say to the Lord, I need you to challenge me. I need you to challenge me. Every Pharaoh needs challenging him. The challenge hardened Pharaoh, but if we can come to God and say, you know what, I need, I need you to come to me. I need you to speak to me directly about my Pharaoh addiction about my, my, my need to be right, my need to pronounce things rather than to receive things, my need to get things rather than to give things. I need you to do that. That would be huge. God also hardened Pharaoh's heart by extending mercy. It hardens Pharaoh's heart because mercy is a language that Pharaoh never understood. Some of us have definitions of mercy that, are, that work simply like this. Um, you know, you did something bad and then God's like, well, whatever. Oftentimes, God's mercy is going to come to us first in a challenge. If we can't receive the challenge, we probably won't be able to receive the mercy. So a few questions for us to meditate on this week. Number one. Is there any part of God that seems less than beautiful to me? Number two, is there anything that God is asking of me that seems more like a demanding challenge than an invitation to mercy? Number three, am I secretly hoping for a throne? These are the essence of Pharaoh addiction. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? And why don't you guys stand up and we'll pray.
We just say, come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you fall on us now like the rain is falling on Kentucky? welcome you here. Father, we welcome you to come and to soften callous places. God, we welcome you to come and and to put your finger on the hard spots in our heart that have come because we have always gotten our way. Father, we also ask this morning that you would remove anything in our thinking or in our heart that is making us believe that you're anything less than absolutely beautiful. Father, we just declare that you're wonderful, that you are the absolute goodness that exists in the universe, and that your ways are wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hey, is anybody in the room? Anybody in the room dealing with uh, like something in their right ear, uh, like <laughs> ringing in the right ear? Anybody in the room dealing with that this morning? Okay, cool. Well, we want to we want to pray for you just while I'm praying, Brian. Okay, cool. Yeah, we want to pray for you just while I was praying. Right ear is on fire. All right, Father, we love you this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, give somebody a high five and a hug. If you need ministry for anything this morning, you come on up. We want to pray for you.